Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. On this episode, Sherry, let's talk about politics. No way. Come on. It's gross. Okay. I don't really want to talk about, like, political positioning or opinions, but I do want to make reference, because I think it relates to the topic we're going to discuss today, to how the political divide seems to happen these days. Because this is something that I fall guilty of. Sometimes I think about something, and we've talked on the podcast lots of times about how I can't ever stop thinking, it seems like, to my detriment, like overkill thinking, Mm -hmm. but I think about something so much and for so long without necessarily voicing it out loud. I've thought about it for so long that I expect everyone around me to know what I'm thinking and to not necessarily agree with me, but, but not to have any question marks about uh, what my opinion might be on something. And I think, you know, when I was trying to think of a solid example of that, Um, I was struggling to think of a real life one for me in my life, other than what the whole topic is going to be today. But I thought about how I think that's what happens. That's why politics, it's such a uh, volatile place to try to communicate with people these days, because I think people think about what their opinion is, and then they go into their echo chamber, they find whichever um, TV news station validates their opinion and then they watch that for hours and hours on end and then they come away just assuming everyone in the world agrees with them and then when they find that about half the people don't agree with them at least half the people in the country don't agree with them they get really angry and offended by that and it just amps up the rhetoric and the the anger related to that and so I, I just I wish we could get to a place where We could talk about things before we had completely locked into our opinion with no room for anyone else's opinion and and be open at least to whether it changes our minds or not to at least a reasonable conversation and hearing other people's thoughts. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Yes, it does. That would be nice if we could do that in the communication in our relationships as well, in our marriage relationships, specifically the ones when we're trying to recover from alcoholism. Mm -hmm. But I think we get hung up and we have communication struggles and we see it all the time, especially in early sobriety. One person has their opinion, the other person has their opinion. We don't know particularly well how to communicate with good listening skills and empathy. And so we don't. We are just divided into our sides and the pain continues in early sobriety. I know in our case, Sherry, my selfishness was largely to blame for communication struggles in early sobriety, and it wasn't intentional selfishness. I mean, I went from the selfishness of alcoholism, active alcoholism, which we've talked a lot about that. That's basically, you know, everything revolves around when I'm going to get my next drink. If we're doing something with the family I'm thinking, gosh, can I bring beer along for this event? Or will they? Will there be a bar there? If we're going out to eat with the family, we would never, when I was a drinker, have even considered going to a restaurant 
that didn't have a liquor license. And so, and you know, the weekends are all about me relaxing, air quotes, relaxing, and making sure I'm able to drink throughout the weekends. And when we go to a neighborhood function and people are starting to leave and it's winding down, we've been there for a couple hours. Well, if, if they're still left in that beer, beer left in that beer cooler, I'm not ready to go. And so all that selfishness of active alcoholism really carried over into early sobriety because now all of a sudden it's, oh my gosh, I need to find a way to stay sober and I've got to learn about brain chemistry and I've got to learn about recovery nutrition and I've got to get to the bottom of what's what was driving my addiction in the first place and me, 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 me. This is I'm leaving out all the years that I spent trying to manage my addiction and set rules around my addiction, which is also lots of time for me, 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 me. But so my ability to to communicate and listen to your needs, I mean, I never even asked you what you needed. Can you think of a single time in, in my attempts, my many attempts at sobriety, when I asked you, Sherry, what can we do for you? What what do you need? Um, I really can't think of any. I think there would be questions posed, but they weren't questions that were necessarily, <clears throat> um, you know, for my needs. Um, like, I feel like you would say, you asked me questions that were kind of open-ended, but then they would be like, so why are you feeling this way or why are you acting this way? But it was never like... You oh, really yeah, didn't want to know mean. why. No, I feel like and, I would I would follow those questions up with a little rah-rah speech. Like, you know, why yeah. are you still sad? I'm sober now. Come on. Yeah. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Things are better. Yeah. I never really considered that you had needs beyond my sobriety. And so, I mean, that goes to the selfishness. I didn't ask. And I did a lot of assuming. I assumed that my sobriety would make you happy. And so as long as... All of the effort of the relationship was focused on me and my sobriety, then things would get better. Well, and so, so I just expected you to be there cheering me on and doing whatever it took to, to help me get over the hump. I think that because you had had other attempts at sobriety and they were longer term, like months, um, and, you know, half year to nine months, right? Like that was... Yep. You were never really, you were still kind of sad and listless and not quite yourself. So I kind of feel like this last time that you gained permanent sobriety, I had already disassociated with, I don't care if he is, you know, kind of miserable for the rest of his life in a small way because he can't drink and he feels sorry for himself. And I know I wasn't elated because I was worried that you were going to go back to drinking. That always hovers in the um, the family members of and loved ones that are surround the sober or trying to get sober person. But I had already kind of cut myself off and I thought, yeah, because I needed to work on me and I needed to keep doing things that um, made me happy. And sometimes just ignoring you and not being around you and not engaging with you and asking what you were doing or reading, or learning, um, it wasn't great on my side, 
because I didn't, I wasn't involved, I guess is a good way to say it. But I also knew that it wasn't going to make me feel any better about your attempt at sobriety. So. And when you say you focusing on you, I, I would also add into that that you were focusing on the kids. Yeah. Like that, that's one thing that's a universalism among the loved ones where there are kids involved in the relationship, the loved one has a great deal of um, effort and and prioritization that they put on the kids. Not to say that we alcoholics don't love our children, because of course we do, and we want to spend time with them, and we want to nurture them. But the focus in early sobriety is on getting sober. And I think it's important to note that for the loved one, their process includes a lot of time and TLC for the kids. Once the alcohol is gone and the chaos simmers down for a few moments, there's a ton of guilt, isn't there, Sherry? About time wasted that wasn't spent with the kids. And so then you you want to make up for that? Is that... Well, not so much that I want to make up for that with my part. I think that maybe I just remained, I'll say I remained focused. I didn't necessarily add that. I remained focused on the kids just because you weren't, you still weren't available. You still weren't there. You still were working through your emotions. Um, You still needed to do things that during those witching hours that even though, you know, that were still kind of in solitude in a way. And you were still like, your nerves were raw. I mean, you're transitioning into a new life, so um, of course you're on edge and nervous, and you weren't always the most patient, or um, sometimes you'd be a little cranky. So I still kind of remained focused on doing everything for them. And we would ask you, and not assume, if you wanted to be involved in things, like if we went to an outing or, you know... I want to pick up on something you said a few a minute or two ago that I think is really interesting. You you started out saying that you you almost wanted me to suffer a little bit when I would talk about how hard it was not to drink, how the cravings were really strong, or or the patterns that had been grooved in my brain to to drink in at the witching hour, at you know at happy hour every evening, and. You said you almost, how did you say it? Did you, you took some joy in my discomfort? Did I misunderstand? Yeah, I, I don't know. I. You almost wanted me to suffer. No, I, I don't feel like I said I wanted you to suffer. I just, I didn't care. I was disassociated okay. with what you were doing. Like I had, That's fair. It had already gotten to the point where I had detached and you said, and you've said in many of your other podcasts and blogs and conversations with people on Shout Sobriety or Echoes Calls that the dis, you know, the disconnect, the um, boundaries that I put up around you made you, you know, feel in pain. But I was already, already feeling like, you know, we had come a really long road and in previous times and attempts of sobriety, I've listened to all of it. Is it fair to say and that was... some of that disconnection, when I would talk about the cravings and how hard it was to not drink, does some of that come from a little bit of a lack of understanding about the disease of addiction? Was 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 some of 
was some of it like, Ugh, what do you mean it's hard not to drink? You just don't drink. Just don't pick up the drink. It's not that hard. I think in the, the earlier attempts, yes, but I, I feel like I did educate myself a little bit before this final time towards sobriety. So we, I did know a little bit about brain chemistry and we read a book that talked about like people who were abusing alcohol or people who are real alcoholics. So that did give us, give me some insight about brain chemistry. I, I didn't understand the desire and the, of the cravings when I kept thinking you're trying to do something to better your life Uh and that will better the lives around everybody. Right. So I thought, why don't you just hunker down and get through those cravings? focus on that? Yeah, focus on that instead of feeling sorry for yourself that now your life is going to change. And so I didn't quite... And I mean, I still don't, honestly, because I don't have that desire for an intoxicating, um, you know, beverage or drug because I've never been addicted like that. So I don't understand how hard it is to avoid and really work through a craving. The way I would describe it now, and I don't, again, going back to that politics reference, I think a lot of the people that listen to this podcast are are kind of so firmly in the mindset that they have because of the pain that they've endured, because of alcoholism being in their relationship either as the drinker or as the loved one for so long that I don't know that I'm going to convince anyone of anything um, because maybe the the tribalism and they're so entrenched but but the further I get away from my drinking days you know years and years away from it now when I think back on what those cravings really were because I can I can still go there today I can think about the relief that's involved in drinking during a stressful time and still long for that today. Now, I wouldn't say that that's a craving that's got any teeth to it or that's that's going to threaten my sobriety. There really aren't any times anymore. And, and I, of course, I can hear how cocky I sound as I'm saying this. So maybe this is a mistake to talk like this. But I the, the word craving, I, I don't... I don't I don't feel like there's, you know, a chance that I'm going to drive to the liquor store and act on any of this. But when I picture the the relief, that's the word I would choose, the relief that would be involved in drinking now. And I I think that might be an important thing for you to hear me say, Sherry. Maybe that you know, as opposed to looking at it like, "Oh, he just wants to drink cuz he likes to party." Or he wants to drink because he likes to act like an idiot. Um, drinking, what the last kind of bastion of helpfulness that drinking holds a little sliver of my brain still, that sliver is relief. It all, if when stuff's piling up and I'm stressed from work and family and just everything, and I just want, I want the responsibilities to go away for a little while, I know, whoa, if I was to drink those responsibilities would disappear for a while. So, again, I'm not trying to justify alcoholism. I'm not trying to make myself and my fellow sufferers, you know, sound like some kind of hero or or give us an excuse by any means. But, I don't know. I'm just trying to explain it in a way that 
is easily understandable. When I talk about, when I say that, when I explain the cravings as what, what alcohol would represent would be relief, does that make any sense well, to you? That makes more sense than I think just saying I have a craving for um, alcohol right now. Like a relief. Yeah, because, you know, as we've learned in many conversations between you and I, you would explain it. I didn't understand it, but it makes a logical sense that relief is the way. Because, I mean, like you think about if you've been craving a sweet or craving potato chips, you know, something like that, whether you're an alcoholic or not, you know, just a normal person. Think about when you do get, oh, you finally get that right kind of potato chip, you know, or that flavor of ice cream that you really like. It is a relief, and you're like, ooh, giddy and happy. And even though we know that towards the end of your drinking, um, you weren't really happy because you were drinking, it was causing a lot of turmoil and depression and, and you know, keeping your anxiety in a heightened state. So, you know... A relief is a good way to describe that. That, I think, people can wrap their head around. Now all I can think about is ice cream. <laughs> all I can think about is potato chips. Jeez. That's kind of reverse for you and I. You're usually the salty and I'm the sweet. But, okay, so... So this is good. So, you know, even this far into sobriety, we've talked about something that was just a minor little disconnect. Um, and... I appreciate you not taking a normal political stance and just rejecting what I had to say and reverting to whatever you were thinking, but but hearing me out when I talked about relief and absorbing some of that information, I think that's a testament to how far our relationship has come, that we actually listen to each other now. But back to this, the the disconnect of early recovery, early sobriety. So there were things that I was going through that you, A, had run out of uh, tolerance for or interest in. You didn't want to hear about the latest thing I'd read or the new thing I was going to try. You were over it. Um, and there were, there were things that I was doing that continued to be selfish, the same kind of selfishness that I had in active alcoholism. I was now focused on me, 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 and my sobriety and early sobriety. And so that's pretty unappealing. I never bothered to ask you what you needed. I just assumed what you needed was me to be sober and that would be it. I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't have the inclination to think there was anything beyond that. And he, here's kind of the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about. Your detachment your isolation and pulling away from me, not isolating from everybody, you know, you were still interacting with kids, but isolating from me to a certain extent. I viewed that as you being unsupportive in the time when I most needed your support. And it hurt. Now, in hindsight, I look at the pain that that involved as a blessing because it, it combined with the pain of my debilitating depression and anxiety that was alcohol-induced to make me say, okay, this is it. I have got to get permanently sober. No more messing around. So I can look back on that pain and be thankful for it. But at the time, it just felt like, oh my God, who have I chosen as a life partner? This person that is my spouse is unsupportive in the time when I need her most to be supportive. 
and it was super painful. And I thought, I didn't realize, I didn't realize not only how important that was for me, for my healing, I also didn't realize how common that was. I didn't realize that you had been driven to a point by my drinking that you didn't care anymore. And not only was that okay, that was natural. I thought you just were an unloving, mean person. Hmm. Did you feel any of that for me? Well, I could tell that you were um, upset and I could tell that you were hurt. But I think that at that point in time, we were beyond arguing about it because I think you understood that I just, I didn't have it in me to give any more time and attention to it. Um, you know, because this was a 10-year process, basically, for you, from the time that you realized that you had a severe issue with alcohol. Um, I mean, alcohol certainly caused issues and lots of arguments and chaos for those 15 years before. Right. Um, but there had been multiple conversations between you and I about, listen, I just can't hear every single thing you're doing. You know, or when you would come to me with a new thought, I'm like, yeah, but then you're going to find something that you're going to read a couple days later that's going to counter counteract that, you know, or this is your new plan. Because the thing that worried me was that you would always come to me with a new drinking plan, a new strategy to keep things under control. And um, so I, I don't feel like... And maybe it was just the this protective shield that I put up that I didn't really feel like I was being treated poorly by you and you were expressing to me how terrible I was as a support system. I mean, I know that we had arguments um, in the beginning of the early sobriety and I remember one time you were telling me how unsupportive I was. And I kind of deflected it. I thought, I don't care. I've tried to be supportive in yeah. multiple ways for many, many years, and I was done. Yeah. What I didn't know when I was living in my silo, my little echo chamber, everything's about me and my early sobriety, and how am I going to keep this going? When I was in that, that tunnel vision state, what I didn't understand was that your detachment from me, your cold shoulder, if 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 you will, that was not just an act of anger or distrust. Now, you were angry, and rightfully so, and you didn't trust me anymore, and rightfully so, because of all the times I told you I was going to quit, and then I relapsed. All the empty promises that I made. So yes, you were angry. No, you didn't trust me. But that's not what your detachment was about. I mean, that, that might have been the driving force behind it, but the the healing power of your detachment... That was the independence you needed to heal. You know, we, we, you and I both are not fans of the word codependency. I've never met anyone who is a fan of the word codependency, actually. But what that is all about is when your life just begins to revolve around my health, my sobriety. What's he going to do next? Is he going to relapse? How can I make sure he doesn't? You know, we've talked lots of times about how you used to, you used to, if you had a, uh, discussion that you needed to have with me about finances or, or something with the kids, you would try to plan that at the perfect moment when I was the most calm and least likely to be volatile. That's codependence when you're picking and choosing your times to talk to somebody because you're so afraid that you're going to send them over the edge. 
And so that detachment that you were able to, to muster, that place you were able to get to, was so healthy for you because that gave you the independence you needed to heal. Stop constantly worrying about, you know, what reaction I'm going to have and you be you. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'd kind of gotten to the point where I was tired of living my life, um, as a lot of people would understand this term, walking around on eggshells and just feeling like I I have to learn to be me. I have to be okay with saying things that um, maybe you don't want to hear but needs to be said or having to work on something with you that it's not an appropriate time for you, but it's an appropriate time for me and we need to get it done in a timely fashion or something. So I just got tired of putting up with being like that. Yeah. You know, that independence, not only is that needed to heal, but it's important. It was important for me to learn. I wish I had known it in the moment, but it's important for me to know in hindsight that, you know, you weren't stranding me. You weren't leaving me the alcoholic alone when I was most needed. You were focusing on yourself when that was what was most needed by you. That's a huge but important distinction. We as alcoholics often underestimate the amount of damage that we have, that our disease has done to the person that we love. And I make that distinction. I started to say that we have done, but you and I are both big fans of blaming the alcohol, not blaming the individuals. And I feel like I do, I do that. I, I live that. So I don't, I don't look, look back on that time. I look back on that time with some, certainly some shame and a ton of regret, but I don't just sit there and beat myself up. I'm able to say, okay, now that I see what kind of a human being I am with alcohol, not in my life, I am able to, to pin the blame for the kind of human being I was when I was drinking on the alcohol. So I can look back now and say, you weren't leaving me. You weren't detaching from me when I most needed you. You were detaching from me when you most needed yourself because the suffering that you had been through, the way alcohol had changed you, your your outlook, your nervous system response, uh, the triggers, all of that, you needed you to work on yourself and... and so the detachment wasn't coming from a place of rejecting me as much as it was coming from a place of loving yourself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't think that I was aware at the time that I needed to really work on myself. Absolutely. I just, it was just like an instinctual sort of thing. Like, I just can no longer be sucked in and have everything revolve around Matt and his drinking or not drinking or um, he just cannot be the highlight. And he can't be the dominating factor in the family. So. It's a, it's a diabolical disease, isn't it? I mean, with, with divergent paths, when the healing starts, when sobriety is tenuous and that's the goal, the two people involved have to kind of go in opposite directions because not only would an a really super supportive spouse almost that's almost like enabling that's almost making it too easy for the person who's attempting sobriety and making relapses too acceptable 
you, you almost need that detached spouse as, I don't know, a wake-up call or almost like a, an unspoken threat, like, oh, she's done messing around. So if I drink, you know, here I've been sober for six weeks, let's say. If I drink now, oh, it's going to be bad. As opposed to if you were my biggest cheerleader, come on, Matt, you're doing great. I know you can do it again. Let's do another day. Then I would feel like, well, if I slipped, whatever, she'd, she'd be there to be like, oh, okay, let's pick you back up and try again. Pick you up, dust you off. I feel like I didn't know it at the time, but I think that it was, you know, happening. And when I when you were describing that scenario, I kept thinking about when you have, when you're raising a child and you do things for them, but then when they do something for themselves for the first time, they get excited. I don't know if any of you have kids, but any of you are even aware, but they get excited and they like to say things like, I do it myself, I do it myself. And what kind of self-confidence is the person that's trying to maintain sobriety going to have if you're constantly like, I don't know, you know I'm not words of affirmation and I'm certainly not a, you know, a big cheerleader. I'm not that kind of person, but I think if you had a cheerleader all the time, you wouldn't know when you really did something well, and how can you have self-satisfaction? Does that... Yeah, I I chuckled because the analogy is probably pretty appropriate because you're, you're comparing the alcoholic and early sobriety to a child, and in in ways we are. I mean, we have we, we've talked lots, and there's lots of people in the recovery community who ha, who have also said this that the we have the emotional maturity as alcoholics. We have the emotional maturity of whenever it was we started drinking, and I would say that the most common age for people to have started drinking who are in a similar situation to the one you and I are in is like 17. So we have the emotional maturity of a cheerleader, or not a cheerleader. 17-year-old. We have, I guess cheerleaders are mostly 17, kind of. Yeah. We have the most emotional maturity of a 17-year-old, and uh, growth and development, the kind of growth and development into the emotional maturity of someone older, yeah, there is a need for some independence and not to, to be coddled and and cheered on. You're, yeah. you're right. I mean, I think that it is, and I, I think that it's, it's good that you can be respectful and kind as the loved one when somebody's like, oh, I've made it a week now. Woo-hoo. You say yes and keep going on that week. Yeah. Boom, that's it. Okay, I'm not a big, oh, yeah, you can do it, baby. Come on, you can do it. You know, that sort of person. But, like, if you were to come to me and say, Oh, well, I haven't been drinking a week, and look, I um, mowed the lawn, or I emptied the dishwasher. Well, good for you. You're being a human being, and that's an adult, like all of us. Whoa, you know, I couldn't get on board with that, so I don't think I ever allowed you to really share um, a bunch of your stuff that you accomplished, so that that detachment allowed me not to have to be a fake cheerleader, and... Or just make me feel like, oh, God, he's so pathetic. He's going to come and tell me about this little thing that he accomplished because he wasn't drinking. Well, I don't drink, and I do those things all the time. But I think there is some element to doing it on your own and working through it because no one can be in your own head. No one can control you. And so having that self-control 
would lead to self-confidence and being proud of yourself when you're trying to quit and you've made it through. Yeah. Yeah, over time it would. And and let's not, you know, understate how much of a just really, really shitty, difficult period there is to get through in early sobriety and how long that is. That's, for me, I think it was about a year and I think that's pretty common to get to a place where the patterns had shifted and I wasn't craving alcohol every evening and where my neurotransmitters had started to fire properly and I wasn't dependent on alcohol to feel even the slightest little ounce of pleasure. And so that period where I'm fighting the cravings and I'm sad all the time and I'm dealing with emotions for the first time, it's really hard to get through. And it's so counterintuitive to think that in a way, you you know, I don't want to say that the alcoholics should disconnect. They should find community. Um, just like what we have in Shout Sobriety, what a lot of people find in Alcoholics Anonymous, and there are literally hundreds of other programs out there now. So they should find community to share what they're going through with, um, people that they can resonate with, people that they can support and can support them. But the weight of that can't fall on the loved one, can't fall on the, the spouse. Because not only is that not helpful, not only do you need that little bit of independence to go and get that sobriety yourself and, and not be coddled and not have a, a soft landing if you relapse, but it's also in the best interest of that spouse to detach and work on their own healing and become independent and say, my every breath does not rely on what this person I'm living with has chosen to or chosen not to drink. That independence is important for them. That independence is important for the drinker as well. But we just don't see it in the time. We're hurting and we want someone to hug us. And we can't understand how important it is that that person doesn't maybe care as much as we thought they did. That's why I say it's such a diabolical disease. These divergent paths that are, are not... You know, they are. They're counterintuitive. They're not understood. Uh, from the outside, they're not understood. When you're new with this, they're not understood. They, they don't come naturally. Well, can I just interject and say that I think that a lot of the alcoholics <clears throat> that are in relationships have really burned some bridges over the years. Like, there is pain and anger and hurt that makes it hard, I think, for the loved one to when when they are understanding they need to detach and and work on themselves but there's there's some frustration that here we you know that we have this anger and hurt and we just don't have any more to give to you and i think that we've we've talked to a lot of people and i think that the alcoholics just don't don't really get that because they're not fully aware of what damage has been done and you can't approach them because they're so tender in the beginning stages of sobriety. Yeah. That you can't even begin to talk about those sort of things um, without it becoming too painful and hurtful. And that's not the time to bring it up. So allowing each of you to um, work on yourselves independently and, like you said, get support from other alcoholics... Well, I think the fact that 
my uh, my mindset at the time, and I know for sure that I'm not alone. My mindset was, if I just get sober, everything will be fine. I think that highlights what you just said about how we as drinkers don't appreciate the level of damage that we've done. Our thought process is what will fix it is sobriety. And the only thing sobriety does is like uh, expose the damage. It doesn't fix anything. It just it just makes room for the work to be done. And I think as an alcoholic in early sobriety, if someone had said that to me, I'd have said, what work? What do you mean? I just need to get sober. Mm-hmm. I would not have appreciated how much pain that you had been through, how many, you know, just searingly painful memories um, were stuck in you. I think this is really interesting, something that I've noticed recently. I have, for as long as I've known you, thought that you had the best memory ever and that your memory is so much better than mine. And often the things that you were able to remember were really terrible things that happened during my active addiction. And now that we've moved, you know, kind of years away from that, I've noticed that your your more recent memory is pretty average. Hmm. You forget things. And there are times when I remember things much better than you. Well, it's because you're a year and a half younger than me. So yes. you're just a spry chicken Youth. now. That's right. Yes. My youthfulness. <laughs> are you taking Renogen or whatever? Yeah. Well, I remember when that AARP envelope first arrived for you. <laughs> but the point is, when the memory that's being made isn't painful and isn't isn't causing you all kinds of trauma, uh, some of those stick around in your head and some of those flinter away and some of them are cloudy and not not quite as crisp. Yeah. And I think that's that's really interesting. I think that's... Super common. You don't necessarily have a superhuman memory. You have, you your brain handles trauma the way most brains handle trauma. It it sears it in there, and uh, and you know you've you've come back to normal human memory status because there isn't something constantly causing you grief and anxiety and turmoil. Yeah. Have you noticed that your memories? I, yes. I I don't think I'm worried about. Any sort of dementia. I no, think that it's like just that. yes, I think it's just normal. And I, I've kind of thought about it too. I wonder if it's because I'm not on like high alert, so I'm not like being the detective and being the observer and just making sure that all this you know what I mean? Like so if you're like kinda of on high alert and you're always trying to notice and understand and hear and and figure out what's going on in different parts of the house and did he just open the beer refrigerator? Yeah. That sort of thing. So it's funny because we talk a lot about how, uh, as an alcoholic, you know, as a high-functioning alcoholic that's trying to keep everything together, there's so much mental gymnastics going on. Do I need to quit? Maybe I can just, maybe I'll drink a glass of water between every drink, and that'll solve everything. I'm going to lay off the hard alcohol. You've got all these things you're constantly processing. How can I keep alcohol in my life at a reasonable level and not have to quit? And it's interesting for me to hear and you know this isn't news to me we've talked about this before but that your brain is equally not maybe not equally but to a similar level on high alert for what's this asshole I'm living with going to do next and so you know that that's not a healthy way for the nervous system 
to operate for the alcoholic and it's not a healthy way for the nervous system to operate for the loved one. We just shouldn't go through life, you know, constantly in fight or flight mode or constantly, you know, trying to see if a tiger is about to pounce and eat us up. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad we're past that. Yeah. And I'm glad that it has equalized our memories. It is nice to know things sometimes that you might have forgotten. There's still one conversation. We're not going to bring it up like we have the bucket. There's still one conversation that I'm still pretty certain we never had. That What's you that? <laughs> About <laughs> which vehicle you were going to take to take our daughter to Minnesota. Oh, this is just... This is. I know that I forget our, some things. Our memories that you're, don't yeah. match up. I know that sometimes I'm like, oh, he's just droning on and on. So, yeah, I'm well, doing something else. But I what, think that that would have been one where. What words... vehicle are we going to take on a 13-hour drive? That's that would be captivating podcasting. So, <laughs> yeah, I think we should hammer that one out. <laughs> but we remember it differently. Yeah, because yeah. I think that you would have remembered my reaction. So I clearly was, you may have said it, but I clearly was not listening to you at all. Right. And that is kind of a nice thing, I think. Not, not it doesn't sound nice, but because I know you're not going to say something shocking all the time, that if we're both like working and doing something and I'm not paying attention, I'm not going to be overtly surprised. That was one that surprised me. Hmm. But I think because our lives are normalized now, I'm not going to be shocked yeah. With uh, something that I may have missed in conversation. Yeah. Well, I guess I'll just have to remember it my way and you can remember it your way. Mm-hmm. And we can Both know talk. each other's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I think. I guess so. I guess so. So that detachment, it's not just uh, an act of anger. It's not just an outburst of distrust. It's necessary. And it comes at the worst possible time, seemingly the worst possible time for the alcoholic. I'm trying to get sober. I need your support and help. And you are nowhere to be found. I'm exaggerating a little bit. You were moderately supportive, but not to the level that I wanted. And not only is that okay, it's necessary for your healing. That's an important important thing for us to drive home. I think, you know, the analogy that comes to mind when I think about this, if you know, God forbid if we were in a car accident, I hate to use a car accident as an example, but it's something everyone would understand. If we were in a car accident, I was driving and you were the passenger and we both got (laughs) injured, you know, everyone in the car gets treatment for the car accident, not just the driver. And I think in alcoholism and in alcoholism recovery, there is so much focus on the driver, the drinker, the person who initiated the problem to get treatment that we forget that the other people in the car, the rest of the family needs treatment as well. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know that helped me to think about it that way. If we were in a car accident and the police and the fire department came, they wouldn't just rush the driver out from behind the wheel to the ambulance, to the ambulance and leave everyone else sitting there bleeding. Yeah. But the other passengers would get treatment as well. Sadly, that's what a lot of the programs seem to kind of focus on. They, you know, they, the long standing, they don't, they don't really include a lot of, um, relationship recovery afterwards. And they don't really highlight to the people in the meetings that your loved ones need to get help. 
um, that it is a family disease and it's a family recovery. Yeah, I mean, some of them that we're aware of offer, like like an example would be, you're in a 30-day inpatient rehab as the alcoholic. Your family comes once a week and we do mm-hmm. a two-hour session with them. So that would, going back to the car accident analogy, that would be like we all hands on deck working on the driver, <laughs> but no matter how bad the injuries are for the other people in the car, uh, just just throw some Band-Aids at them and hope they can figure that out. Yeah. So, and I'm not trying to disparage other recovery plans. This is all, this is all sadly new, this, this idea that other people around the alcoholic need support as well. But what we really want to drive home today is for the alcoholics themselves, for the me's in this scenario, to understand that the amount of support that the people around you, your spouse specifically, in many cases your children as well, maybe other family members, the amount of support and treatment and attention that they need focused on themselves is a lot. This isn't a, an, an an afterthought like, oh, there, I got sober. You should be fine. But if you want to talk about it a little bit, we can. Mm-hmm. No, there, there's a lot that's needed. And that det- detachment and early sobriety, as painful as it might feel and as counterintuitive, if your spouse is detached from you in early sobriety... That's a huge blessing, not only for yourself, but for them, because that means their healing has started. They're not still glommed onto you, and whether you're going to be successful in in sobriety, they are focused on themselves and their independence and detaching and becoming a whole person um, who has a healthy mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Because we need to get our legs underneath us. We need to figure out how we're going to stand. And there's a lot of, of thoughts that are running through, you know, our brains about how we're going to handle this trip or attempt to sobriety. Because also, you know, we're also still worried that you're going to drink. So we're not going to get super supportive because if you relapse and stay, you know, off the wagon, then we've put ourselves through this emotional turmoil again and feeling defeated and disappointed. And so that's right. So that disconnection, those go in two different directions. It's kind of important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe you'll even get to the place where you can have conversations about politics with each other. Maybe. Wouldn't that be delightful? Maybe. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.